Uh, this uh, passage in James has these words, confess your sins to one another. And uh, the broader context of this verse, James is talking, and, and by the way, that is a very difficult one another verse to live out. Of course it is. Of course it is. Uh, I have, I remember when I went to college, if I can be vulnerable with you for a moment, uh, I remember there was a, uh, I had been walking up through the campus and a bunch of guys were playing Ultimate Frisbee on the quad, and it was a shirts and skins game, and later on that week I got invited to go play Ultimate Frisbee, and I declined. Do you know why I declined? I couldn't guarantee I would be shirts. That's why I declined. I think that as, as much as we are um, afraid at times of being exposed, as much as that's true physically, how much more true is it spiritually? Do I really want to be exposed in all of its ugliness to all of you? Well, no. And frankly, I shouldn't be either. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a minute as well. But this idea of confessing our sins to one another if we're honest, instantly fills us with, if we think about it, actually doing it, fills us with a certain amount of dread and fear and a lot of, well, what about-isms? Like, is that always wise? What, what about it? We want to talk about that this morning. But the context that James is first giving us these words is in a broader conversation about healing from disease, which is interesting. Uh, if we go all the way back to verse 14, he says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, always pay attention to those therefores, because it links what he's about to say with what he just said. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So, in the flow of James's reasoning here is there are certain physical ailments that are rooted in sinful behavior. And again, my goodness, we have to be so careful about this. Is that always true? No. Um, we know, in fact, it goes quite the other way at times. Was Job afflicted with a disease because he was sinful? No, it was because he was righteous that he was afflicted with the disease. The blind man in John 9, remember the disciples are walking with Jesus and they say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, no, 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 you've got that all wrong. It wasn't because either of them sinned, but that the glory of God might be manifest in him. And what about the thorn in the flesh of Paul? It probably was reading between the lines some kind of an eye disorder that Paul had. That was not given to him, according to Paul, because of sin in his life, but that he might be trained and learned to trust in God deeper, better, more fully. However, we can go in the other direction too, can't we? Uh, David, in Psalm 32, when he's talking about the aftermath of the Bathsheba affair, when he deeply wronged Bathsheba, deeply wronged Uriah the Hittite, sinned against God, he wasn't confessing it, and he says in Psalm 32 that that had certain physical consequences for him. His bones were wasting away. He felt tired and oppressed from like the heat of the sun on him. He said it was physically killing him to hold this in. 
Miriam and Uzziah were struck with leprosy because of sin in the Bible. And we read those famous communion instructions. We're going to be taking communion at the end of our time here together. But Paul, in his letter to the church in Corinth, says, Some of you are sick and others have even died because you've taken the communion without a spirit of repentance towards sin in your life. So, yes, we need to strike a balance, right? When Job's comforters came to him, comforter in air quotes, they came to him saying, Job, clearly all this terrible stuff is happening to you because you're a sinner. Confess it. And Job, Job was like, no, it's not true. It, I don't, that, that's not why all this thing, these things are happening to me. And so I don't want us to go as a church and look at other people as they get sick or bad things befall them and we say, what did they do to deserve that? That would be wildly out of step with the gospel and not true. But there are occasions where people in obedience to this command from James, where if you're sick, to call on the elders to come and anoint you with oil and pray over you, I've had occasion to do that, and I do take seriously that part of the instruction here, which is to use that as a time to offer an opportunity for people to confess and repent if there is something sinful in their life that they need to repent of. That's part of this whole conversation. When James says, call for the elders, part of that is they need to do some difficult digging. And there's a possibility here that part of what's wrong is that there's sin in your life that you have not confessed and not repented of, and they need to ask that question. And it's usually a very uncomfortable moment (laughs) when that happens, for sure. But that's what's going on here. But then James, in giving that specific example, call for the elders... They're going to ask you about sin. They're going to pray over you. He then transitions from that very specific example to something more general, broad in scope, when he says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. In other words, he's not saying now, confess your sins to the elder at all. He's saying that this should be, this should be practiced within the church. And I don't think he's only saying, confess your sins to those who you have wronged. We find that elsewhere in the Bible, too. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says, if any of you are bringing an offering before the Lord at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. That's what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. That's certainly good policy, good practice, very biblical and true. But here, this is something more general, more broad in scope. Confess your sins to one another. This is not something I commonly hear taught in the church, and I have seen it even less lived out in my own life. But I do believe it is biblical counsel for us that I want to at least give a Sunday to thinking about. Confessing our sins to one another, why? Isn't it enough, God, that I would confess my sins to you? Why must I involve other human beings in that? In the strictest sense, you don't. Uh, I don't think this is a heaven and hell issue. (laughs) Like, I think if you don't confess your sins to others, um, you're not going to forfeit your salvation or anything like that. I want to be very clear about that for sure. Um, But I do think there's real benefit in this. I want to challenge you this morning to think about um, moving in this direction, and uh, along the way, we'll be careful to explain why. In order to help get to the heart 
I think of, of part of why this is important. I want to turn with me over to Galatians 6, 1 through 2, where we're going to find another one another statement. Uh, in Galatians 6, 1 through 2, and if this is at the tail end of Galatians, the book of Galatians, and in, in the book of Galatians, Paul is uh, addressing a problem in the life of the Galatian church in very strong language. He has spent all the previous chapters up to this point defending the idea that our salvation rests on what Jesus did for us alone and that we don't add any other works on top of it to that. And so this is kind of at the tail end of his uh, book, and this is part of what he says in the end. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... So he's talking about sin... If anyone is caught in any transgression or sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Before we, uh, we're going to be spending uh, some time here thinking about bearing one another's burdens as it relates to sin. That's what Paul is talking about in this passage in Galatians when he talks about bear one another's burdens. We'll come back to that in a second. But first, let me spend time with this word caught. Uh, When I hear this word, if anyone is caught in any transgression, if you're like me, you probably think discovered or found out in their sins. But the Greek word for caught here is prolambano, which means overtaken or trapped. So not caught in the sense of being found out or discovered, but rather like a fly in a spider web caught. You're, you're um, ensnared, you're mired, you're stuck. That's the idea. If anyone is found caught in sin, the word here in the Greek is describing somebody who's hopelessly trapped. They're mired, they're stuck in their sin. Therefore, we're not to envision ourselves in reading this verse as policemen who come running with handcuffs, but with people who come with the jaws of life. We're not coming to like slap the cuffs on somebody, but to help free them. That's the idea behind what Paul is describing. So let's read it again with that in mind. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, if anyone is like a fly in a spider web caught in that stuff, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. In other words, you're going to go in and deal with some sticky stuff. Don't get stuck yourself. You know, I remember once I got called uh, as a police officer, another cruiser had gotten stuck in a field. What he was doing in the field, I don't know. To this day, I don't know. But we went out there to try and get him loose, and our cruiser got stuck. (laughs) Sometimes if you wrestle with a skunk, you come away a little stinky yourself. And Paul here is really saying you're going to dive into somebody's mess to try and help them. And you're going to be dealing with stuff that is tempting to human beings. And be careful. Watch over your spirit as you go to help them that you don't end up stuck there too. This is kind of his advice. The goal is to restore. He says, you who are spiritual should restore the one who is caught. This word restore means to put back in order or to repair. It was the same word used for setting a broken bone. And I think there is some overlap here with our study last week of the command to build one another up. We are to put the broken one back together, 
to help them heal gospel true, straight, like a doctor would do. It's the same word also used in Mark 1.19 for mending fishing nets. In the same way, the goal is not to put broken, the goal is to put broken ones back together and release them for service. When the woman caught in adultery was brought to Jesus, the people wanted to stone her. We read about that in John chapter 8. But Jesus was not interested in destroying this woman. He was interested in restoring her. The Pharisees brought her to him in the spirit of, like, she's, we caught, we caught her in her sin. The handcuff kind of caught. And Jesus is standing there with jaws of life. Two very different orientations toward this woman. Two different definitions of caught. You see the Pharisees thinking, we caught her. And you say, Jesus going, she is caught. That's for sure. But rather than heaping judgment, he then says some very important things to her. He shows her grace. She's pointed to the one who has the power to free her from her sins, and she's encouraged to go and sin no more. She's restored. She's freed. This passage out of Galatians 6, again, has another one of those one another statements. It says to bear one another's burdens. But within context, the burden at issue that this verse is addressing is the burden to defeat sin in our lives. This is the burden he's saying we should share with one another. Now, it's true in a general sense that we're also meant within the church to share one another's burdens, uh, burdens like sickness, unemployment, the loss of a loved one, loneliness, rejection. I think we should be first in line when somebody needs help moving, even if they're moving away from us, or assistance during a financial crisis. But this verse was originally given not for that kind of burden sharing, which is also true. I'm not saying this at the expense of any of that. But I'm broadening the idea to maybe a place that we haven't thought about much and haven't lived out much as Christians. At least I haven't. I'll speak for me. I don't know about all of you. And that is, Paul is talking about the idea of sharing the burden of another's sin. That's what he's talking about. The Bible is clear that a sinful attitude or habit is much more harmful to a person than any of those other kinds of burdens that we might share as a people. Therefore, if we really care about a person's ultimate welfare, we will seek to comfort them in their trouble. And that might even involve sometimes confronting them in their sin. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So much of Paul's letter up to this point, which I explained earlier, has been a warning against the prideful human impulse towards spiritual self-reliance. Uh, Paul is uh, addressing a lot of his letter to the Galatian church in, in uh, contradiction to the work of a group that the Bible calls the Judaizers. The Judaizers were a group of people who had become Christians, had joined the Christian movement, I'll say, but who were still trying to hold on to some of what they had been taught coming up in Judaism was the way to salvation. 
And so they really believed that in order to be saved, you had to observe certain feasts. You had to do, eat certain kinds of food. You had to go through circumcision if you were a male. And if you didn't do these things, you were not really going to be saved. And so what they said to the Galatian Christians, who were not brought up in that tradition at all, they were actually living in modern-day Turkey, they were Gentile believers, and the Judaizers come to them and said, you as new Christian converts have not been fully informed about the total program. Paul has told you a lot about Jesus and what he did for you, and that's great. That is definitely necessary. But what we're here to tell you is the other half of it. You also need to do A, B, C, D, and E if you want to be saved. And Paul is, if you read the book of Galatians, guys, it is some shocking language in there. I won't even share it from the pulpit, but it's kind of like, whoa, he just said that in the Bible. (laughs) There's some moments like that where he's red hot and angry about the stuff that they're saying. And this is a disastrous thing to introduce into the church because it undermines the gospel. Instead of Jesus being your Savior, this idea encourages us to be our own Savior. The Judaizers came along and encouraged the Galatian converts towards spiritual self-reliance, not greater dependence on Jesus. This is, by the way, exactly the same thing that happened in the Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden, Satan came to Adam and said, you will not die. You eat of the fruit, you'll be like a god. You'll be like God. Eat it. And Adam, in eating the fruit, the sin that he committed that caused all this misery, all this fallenness, all this brokenness was acting on the idea that it's better to be a god than to continue trusting in God. And here the Judaizers come and say, Did Paul really say it was through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone? Wouldn't it be better to be a savior to yourself? Wouldn't it be better if you could take the reins of your own salvation, you could shoulder it, you could make sure through your own body of good works that it was attained? And the fallen hearts of human beings soar to that kind of language. It would be better to be my own savior than to have to trust in one is the idea that was being introduced into the Galatian church. And Paul, he comes firing back with both barrels at these guys. Really lets them have it. And so Galatians 6.2, he says, So fulfill the law of Christ. This is why verse 2's emphasis on sharing one another's burdens is so striking. Do gods need help with their burdens? No, they don't. Gods go around saying things like, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I help you with your burden. You don't help me with mine. (laughs) Is life sometimes too much for God that he needs help to get by? No, of course not. The Judaizers are all about being strong and spiritually self-sufficient. And their salvation is rooted in their observance of the law. They're good because they do. All this stuff is toxic. It's dangerous. It undermines the gospel, and it undermines a gospel-shaped church like ours if it takes root and flourishes. Verse 2 makes it clear that one of the signs that we have been shaped by the gospel and filled with the Spirit is that we acknowledge our own neediness and insufficiency that we share in the nature of Christ by coming alongside others who are caught, prolombano, 
like a fly in a web in the midst of sinful passions, in the midst of passions too powerful for them, circumstances that are too much for them. Some of you, I'll just say me, (laughs) some of us have been wrestling with habit sins for years. You've done everything you can think of to put those patterns of sin to death. You've prayed. You've memorized scriptures. You've cried bitter tears following failures. You've struggled and you wonder, can I ever walk away from this? You remain caught, though, prolombano, given over. And I would suggest that perhaps one of the means of grace that God has appointed for us to get uncaught is a burden-sharing church. It's a church where you have friends here, mature, loving brothers and sisters, where when you share the big ugly, they respond with grace. They come running with the jaws of life. They want to be a help to you in getting unstuck. In Hebrews 12.4, the author of Hebrews says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Some of you have tried everything but confessing your sin to another person. And I want to challenge you with that idea this morning. It says here, you who are spiritual should restore him. The question is, who are these spiritual people that Paul is talking about in Galatians 6, whose job it is to restore people who are caught in their sin? I would suggest it is not referring to some kind of super-Christian. He's talking here, I think, about normal, spirit-filled Christianity. All Christians are spiritual because they have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, We don't have priests in our church because we believe that Jesus is our priest. He is the intermediary between fallen man and God for all times. He's a perfect priest. So we don't longer have priests that we go to to confess our sins. You don't need an intermediary between you and God, of course. This is just normal spirit-filled Christianity. The idea behind you who are spiritual is that this is not the sort of thing that should be attempted in the flesh. We need God's help to restore someone who's been caught in their sin. We need the Holy Spirit to guide us in that effort and to prepare our fallen brother or sister to receive our efforts. It also means that we need to be aware of our own sin before talking to someone about theirs. Uh, I find that in our culture, they love to quote Matthew 7.1, Do not judge so that you won't be judged. Anytime the church raises some issue with some moral concern in the culture, somebody will come out of somewhere to throw this verse back at the church. Judge not that you won't be judged. As though we're somehow sinning by taking issue with sin in the culture and sin in our neighborhood, sin in, in, our, in people's lives. But they're oblivious to Matthew 7, 5. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's that, you see, it's not that the Bible is unconcerned that we would go to take the speck out of someone's eye. It's just saying that before you do that, you must first address the log that's in your own. Jesus is clearly not saying to never be concerned for the spiritual welfare of another. 
He is saying that seeing our own hearts clearly will then give us the clarity of vision to then humbly, lovingly, gently act to help our brother or sister who is caught in sin. Only the one who humbly repents of his own sin and is humbly aware of their own capacity to run their ship aground themselves can go to help someone else who is struggling. Being aware of our own sinfulness as we are confronting a brother or sister who's caught in sin is what allows us to be gentle and gracious. I I do want to, before I give my closing thought here, I do want to make a distinction, though, between uh, confessing our sins to one another and what I will call spiritual exhibitionism. Uh, when I was working at Camp Maranatha in Southern California, I did that for about 10 years. One of my favorite things to do in the evening, sometimes we would host a group and they'd come up and they'd have 200 or something kids and they'd come and have a week there and it was great. And always at the end of the week they'd have, we had this big bowl-shaped semicircular amphitheater built into a hillside and in the bottom was a big fire pit thing and um, one of the last nights at camp they would have a night for testimonies. They kind of open the floor. Does anybody want to come down and share what God did in your life this week at camp? Always very powerful, but also always very risky. (laughs) Because it just takes one person going up to start sharing for the whole thing to kind of go sideways a little bit. But I used to like to go out and listen to it because it was very encouraging for me, having worked all week to support this ministry, to now see the fruit of what God did through our staff and through the camp and all. It was really an encouraging time for me. So I used to like to go and sit in the back and listen. And occasionally, not often, but occasionally, there would be somebody who would get up and just would kind of start to air all of their dirty laundry in front of everyone. And that always struck me as profoundly unwise. (laughs) You just should never get naked in public, right? Literally or figuratively. It's not a good idea. And this, um, this struck me more as spiritual exhibitionism than I think what the Bible is talking about when it says confess your sins to one another. It would be wrong for you to come up here, I think, or at a minimum unwise, and just tell a group this size everything sinful in your life because that's going to fall on some ears that can't be trusted with that information. It's going to fall on some ears that are going to receive that in a harsh judgmental spirit. I think that what this calls for, confessing your sins to one another, is not that it's always wise to tell everyone all the sin in your life, but that you need someone who has proven themselves faithful, who who has a demonstrated maturity in the faith and a love for you and a genuine concern and can be trusted to handle the information you're going to share with discretion and not to share it around town. You need to find someone like that to share these things with. And I want to close with this thought. Um, when, we, when we're thinking about finding somebody with whom to share our sins. And I shared this about three years ago, again, in another season when we were ramping up to small groups and we're talking about these things. And I just wanted to share it again. Uh, these things are sometimes worth sharing as we think about small groups and their role in our lives. I remember... Um, One of the groups that Sarah and I hosted when we were serving in California, um, we had just a ton of people come to that group, and we never really got to know anyone deeply. I think some nights there were like 30 people there, and you just kind of 
stayed surface level. You, you, you couldn't, you, it was kind of like sharing in front of a church or something. It didn't go that way. But then I had another group of guys that I met with for two years. And it was a very small, intimate gathering. And by the end of that two years, I've never been a part of any Christian group like that. Never. It was fascinating to me. By the end of that, the stuff we knew about each other and the stuff we were praying for one another about. And it was born out of trust over time. And my prayer is that you would find such a person in your life. It would be wonderfully helpful to you. Ever since the Garden of Eden, mankind has been trying to hide our sinfulness. However, the church should not be a community marked by secretiveness. In 1 John 1, 5 through 7, it says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. So we're not a secretive hiding society. We're a walk in the light together kind of place, or it ought to be that way. But here's something, and this is what I shared a few years ago, and I want to share again this morning um, as we're thinking about small groups, as we're thinking about becoming one another people. Uh, When it comes to our struggles with sin, lonely defeats will one day bring lonely victories. And God is not glorified in a lonely, hidden victory. Why would the victory be hidden? Well, because for someone who has hidden their defeats from one another, telling of a victory would be a tacit confession to the shameful battles that you've been fighting. It would be like discovering that your house was infested with rats. If your house just became overrun with rats, my guess is most of us would feel a tad self-conscious about that. It's a common problem, though. A lot of people do have that. But if this was embarrassing to you, it's unlikely that you would announce proudly to your friends this, hey, good news, this morning when I opened the cupboards, there were two dead rats in the traps I set there. I got two of them suckers. Isn't that exciting? You probably wouldn't say that, even though you were excited about it, because you'd be afraid that your friends in their heart of hearts would think to themselves, gross, I didn't know you had rats in your cupboards. So you keep that bit of news to yourself. Now the prelude to most every sin is no one will ever know, and its epilogue is no one can ever know. No one must ever know. But when we resolve to let no one know about the rat-infested nature of our hearts, a perverse thing will inevitably happen. For when, by God's grace, you are given victory in a moment of temptation, that story of God's strength, provision, and faithfulness in delivering you from sin, well, it must necessarily, it has to be hidden away because of its shameful association with the very acts of wickedness from which you were delivered. This denies man his highest good, for we were made for the very purpose of worship that the glory of the Creator might be revealed in His creatures. And perversely, it denies God the praise and glory which are His due. 
And I think this is the first and the most compelling reason why it's so important to our God that we confess our sins to one another. God spoke the world into being and created man in his image that his glory might be revealed through them. And if you have no one in your life who you have invited into the reality of your sin struggles, you will, by implication, also have no one with whom you can share the stories of his goodness and deliverance. And for a people who have been called into relationship with God for the express purpose that he would be glorified in us, that is a scary thought. If I've given nobody access to the reality of my struggles, I will have no one to tell when he helps me. God desires man to experience victory over sin, yes, that's true. But he primarily wants to give us such victories that he might be glorified in them. The story he wants to tell through your life is not a story that you're a great person, but that you have been helped mightily by a great God. That's the story of Christianity. And if we hide our sin away and we don't tell the story of his greatness in delivering us and giving us strength, we are perpetuating the Judaizer myth that we're spiritually self-reliant. If we've bundled our defeats and victories together into one shameful package, we will never know, I fear, the kind of practical sanctification that we long to see in our lives, because it reveals that we are not properly motivated by a high concern for God's glory to be revealed in and through our lives. So a concern for God's glory should be first and the most significant motivation for us to do the difficult thing of finding somebody that we trust, somebody who's filled with grace and maturity, and we look to as somebody who can handle that information well, to confess the big ugly to. (laughs) However, there are other benefits as well. If we continue the analogy of the rat-infested house, I think we will see some of the ways that confessing our sins to one another can be a very practical help in our struggle against sin. When you confess to a close friend, one again who has proven him or herself faithful, and who you trust to handle that information well, when you share with your friend that your house is infested with rats, your friend might surprise you with their answer. For example, your friend might say, me too. (laughs) This can be very encouraging. And it has often been my experience that in sharing my big ugly that I have learned I'm not alone. Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians 10.13, says that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. No temptation that's not common. You see, one of the tricks that Satan plays is to make you think you're the only one with rats in the cellar. You're the only one. Nobody else has rats. But Paul makes it plain that those areas where we struggle are common to man. In other words, you're not alone. I don't know what kind of sin struggles you deal with in a habitual way in your life, but I can say with great confidence you're not alone. 
Whatever it is, it's common to man. You're not some spiritual oddity. It's common. You're not alone. However, as long as you labor under the impression that yours is the only rat-infested heart in the neighborhood, Satan will continue to draw you into a double life where the sin you habitually harbor and act upon is hidden away in a secret place. And over time, the gulf between who you are in reality, and who you are trying to appear to be, is going to widen into a shocking and unsustainable chasm. Much of the power of sin is broken when it is spoken out loud to a brother or sister. And Satan's modus operandi is always to get you alone with your sin, and God's strategy is to draw that struggle out to be shared, to be the burden to be shared within the context of loving community. So your friend might say, me too, and if he does, you'll be greatly encouraged. Or he might say, I know exactly what you're going through. I used to have rats. And that's even more encouraging because it means that rats can be spoken of in the past tense. As you listen to his story, you will gain some hard-won perspective and expertise in the matter at hand, which you can bring to bear in your own efforts to kill rats. Or maybe your friend doesn't know anything about rats. (laughs) They don't have rats. They have never have had rats. They don't know. But they're a true friend who loves you sincerely. And if that's so, your friend will most likely respond compassionately by offering to come over after work, flashlight in hand, let's go down in the cellar and see what can be done. And in this, you will have gained some much-needed support. Now, every time I have shared sin with a carefully chosen person, like that, I have received one of those three responses. Me too. I used to deal with that. Or how can I help? What can I do? And in that, my burden was shared. It was, I was helped. And I want you to be helped in the same way. And so my, my hope and my prayer is that as our relationships deepen in the coming years and throughout this coming fall, as we become more and more a one another people, as we share meals together and share life together, maybe at some point you will identify somebody who you think would be a good person to talk to about the big ugly. (laughs) It is a wonderful thing. I'm not talking about spiritual exhibitionism or any such thing as that, but I do think that we should follow the example of what James calls us to in James 5 by confessing our sins one to another. That God might be glorified, that we might be helped, that our burdens will be shared, and you'll be prayed over in relationship to that sin. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we're about to take communion. And Father, what this table represents is the sum total of our hope as we gather before you as your people. Father, we have nothing to brag about in ourselves. We have no goodness whereby you owe us anything. Father, we come before you filled with a deep need. We were prolombano, caught in our sin, hopelessly mired. When Jesus came to us and restored us, and Father, now you have called us to share in the gospel, to live out the gospel in our relationships by helping one another at those times when we might be caught in a sin. 
God, that we might restore one another. Father, fill us with your spirit. Father, I know that in this room, there are people facing desperate battles with sin. Some of it stretching back for decades. Father, you've been there in those seasons after they have failed and there were tears. There was much, you know, Lord, just fear that maybe you'd toss them away or something like that. And Father, you always come along to remind us of your word that when we sin, you are faithful to forgive. Father, we cling with a white-knuckle grip to the depths of your grace. Father, we blow it all the time. And so, Father, just as you show us grace, just as your mercies are new every morning, God, make us more and more into a people who extend that grace and mercy to one another. And, Father, I do pray that you would use our one another community here at State Road to be a place where when the big ugly is shared between friends, Father, that the person who's going, who's caught would get some much-needed help. There would be prayer. There would be advice. There would be a searching of your word. There would be a burden shared in the middle of that. And God, that you would be glorified as we tell the stories of how you have given us victory. Father, we love you. We trust you. And as we come to the table, we're reminded of how deeply you loved us, that Jesus took all of our failings onto himself. And we celebrate and revel in that finished work. In Jesus' name, amen.